Hello everyone, once again I'm back. This is part two of my analysis of cryptocurrency or the crypto-esque structure and its relationship to QAnon. I would also like to note that on the Substack, I post the scripts alongside the audio that I'm reading off if you would prefer both of them. And I'll post a little asterisk if I ever start to sort of, I guess, go off topic or expand on a concept that isn't in the script to make it easier for people to read it as well as listen to it. So anyways, the paradoxical structure of a cryptocurrency, one which seems decentralized, rhizomatic, anti-authoritarian, yet is in reality the exact opposite, can be seen as antithetical to many of the botanical organisms which Deleuze and Guattari make an analogy to in their concept of the rhizome. The express power of these bizarre, seemingly rhizomatic, and yet somehow arborescent, that is, structured like a tree, structures, comes as a result of their paradoxical nature. One requires more than a surface-level interrogation into them in order to understand their true nature as a threat to anti-authoritarianism as opposed to its ally. We can see this phenomena as the inverse of many of the rhizomatic botanical organisms Deleuze and Guattari evoke in their work as a reference point. As pointed out by Jathan Sadowski in Too Smart, a book I would absolutely recommend you read, Rhizomatic clonal colonies, such as the Trembling Giant in Utah, are primary examples of the botanical rhizome which Deleuze and Guattari are referencing. Ironically, the Trembling Giant appears upon a surface-level analysis as being a large group of individual aspen trees, as if it is arborescent. In reality, this massive 10,000-year-old organism is a collection of many trees all connected to each other through a subterranean rhizomatic root system. It is interesting to note how the cryptocurrency structure, or what I will refer to as the crypto rhizome, is the exact opposite of this. It appears upon a surface level glance as if it is a large, decentralized organism predicated upon a multiplicity of different non-essential connections, yet if one were to dig deeper, they would note the essential, singular point in this organism which, when cut off, would kill the entire thing. It's also important to be clear that the way that Deleuze and Guattari describe how the rhizome actually works is essentially not like the trembling giant or the collection of aspen trees. This is simply me going back to the botanical reference and then finding out that the crypto rhizome sort of functions as an opposite of this botanical reality. Therefore, the crypto rhizome is the exact opposite of the botanical rhizome yet it carries with it many similarities. On a surface-level glance, the botanical rhizome may allow one to assume that it is simply a forest of different, yet obviously dependent, organisms, where each one can be killed if one severs the essential connections in each, that is, if one cuts off the trunk of each of the aspen trees in the trembling giant. A larger structural analysis of these botanical rhizomes, such as the trembling giant, shows, of course, how much harder it is to kill this organism than if it was simply a collection of different aspen trees. Each aspen tree must be separated at the root level from the others, which in reality are not others, but merely a different element of the same organism. Then each tree must subsequently be killed. It's important to note also just in general in relation to Deleuze and Guattari's work, how similar their concept of the assemblage or what meaningful anti-capitalist political organization looks like compared to the Trembling Giant, where 
Uh, similar following Spinoza, Deleuze and Guattari have no meaningful conception of the individual agent. Free will doesn't exist. These sort of questions are not really relevant to the Deleuze-Guattarian system. I'll note more of my thoughts on this on the, the premium episode. On the other hand, the crypto-rhizome appears at a surface-level analysis as being rhizomatic, and therefore makes it impossible to target an essential point in the organism which, when severed, would destroy it. It does this specifically to hide the actually existing single essential point, which all data, life, meaning, etc., depending on where this concept is mobilized, must flow through in order for the entire structure to function. The elements of the cryptorhizome, which appear as if they are rhizomatic, are also a result of a sort of pseudo-criticism of the top-down structure that is unable to destroy it and become subsequently integrated within it. With cryptocurrencies, the single essential point, ironically, that allows them to function becomes the very same point that fiat and other currencies flow through, which is the state apparatus. While crypto may have been an attempt to break down this top-down structure, it is entirely unable to do that and is still predicated upon the central point. See the previous episode and me quoting schizoelenic cartographies by uh, Felix Quattari? And now he notes that any capitalist structure that attempts to be rhizomatic is inevitably integrated within the arborescent top-down structure of capital. The crypto-rhizome masks its true nature for the same reason that the botanical rhizome masks its nature, for survival. On a surface-level analysis, this leads one to disassemble the crypto-rhizome how one ought to disassemble the trembling giants, and vice versa. The crypto-rhizome may appear as if one should disassemble it by attacking the multiplicity of non-hierarchical, spontaneous, non-essential connections that make themselves obvious upon a surface-level analysis, which is, of course, how one ought to properly disassemble a rhizome if they are attempting to do so. The crypto-rhizome, upon a surface-level analysis, makes it seem as if this is the case, that this is the way you disassemble it. The crypto-rhizome makes it seem like this is the case, of course, to hide the essential and non-rhizomatic top-down connections which, when severed, would actually destroy the cryptorhizome. Without the destruction of these points, these top-down arborescent structures, the cryptorhizome will not be destroyed. To make this more clear, I guess, we can again think of the botanical analogy and how a surface-level account of the botanical rhizome may lead one to treat it as if it is a collection of trees. And if you do that, if you treat these arborescent structures, which relate to, let's say, the collection of aspen trees and their tree trunks, as if they're the essential thing that defines the organism, then you won't destroy the rhizome. Similarly, if you treat the crypto-rhizome as if it is the inverse, as if it really functions like the trembling giant, and you attempt to focus on the rhizomatic elements of it, you will ignore that the connections that are arborescent, that are top-down, are what really cause it but really allow it to exist. This is how a movement like QAnon, for instance, ought to be conceived as a crypto-rhizome. Many were baffled that QAnon became even more popular following one, the large-scale deplatforming of QAnon accounts on social media websites, and two, the removal of Donald Trump from office. People were baffled by this because they view the QAnon movement as a rhizome and not a crypto-rhizome. Surely the absurd and sporadic structure of the QAnon movement, they thought, could not possibly survive all of its prominent members being banned, 
its centrally important websites being taken down, its primary raison d'etre, that is, of course, Trump remaining in office and taking down the shadow cabal, being proven wrong, etc. This is an analysis that necessarily requires one to think of the Q movement as if it is structured like a rhizome, contingent upon the connections made online between the individual Q believers and fellow-minded right-wing conspiracy nuts on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, etc. This analysis ignores the essential, centralized point in which, in reality, the Q movement and all of its meaning-making necessarily flows through, that is, Donald J. Trump. Trump functions, in many ways, as a despotic signifier for the Q movement. This is another deluso guitarian concept I'm mobilizing. By this, I mean that all meaning and value must fundamentally flow through and relate intimately to Donald Trump for those who believe in Q to make it legible. If a world event cannot be understood in some way in relation to Donald Trump, then this world event is not worth thinking about. It may have even been planted as a distraction to get people to stop focusing on what is really important, that is, things that one could make relate in some way to Donald Trump. It is therefore no surprise that Q believers look at the coup in Myanmar, which was launched using a false claim of a rigged election, as a sign that something similar would somehow happen in America. The baking process, which is the essential process of interpretation for the Q supporters, may be seen as analogous to the mining process of a cryptocurrency. In fact, a cryptocurrency known as Tezos, which was highlighted to me by one of my patrons on Patreon, actually refers to its mining process as baking, and those who verify the blockchain transaction process as bakers instead of miners. The baking process, that is specifically of the Q-believers, may appear as if it is decentralized and autonomous, not necessarily referencing any source of authority directly. This is how many Q-believers can imagine themselves as free thinkers, which is another tricky effect of the crypto rhizome. Many who even participate within the crypto rhizome structure do not realize the top-down authoritarian nature of the connections they're making. But again, to reference the previous episode, when I mentioned that the truth of the blockchain cryptocurrency process is enshrined in production, in Bitcoin mining, it is in a certain way identical to how the truth of QAnon is enshrined in the baking process, in the production of these absurd conspiracy theories. You could argue that it looks decentralized, that it looks spontaneous, yet the baking process always holds allegiance to this top-down structure that necessarily relates to Donald Trump. Importantly, Q believers do not get their belief that Trump is secretly working with military intelligence to stop a satanic shadow cabal of pedophile elites sent to them directly by the White House or the State Department. The truth of the world for Q believers is fundamentally related to the autonomous process of baking Q drops, and even when Q drops stop being released, baking just world events, to fit into some relationship with Trump's supposed grand plan to stop the satanic shadow cabal. Like crypto mining, this process is entirely decentralized and not directly overseen by a source of authority. Yet, this mining slash baking process contains a production of truth that is necessarily contingent upon top-down structures. Just as the mining process that creates the public crypto ledger is contingent upon the states to enforce private property, so too is the baking process contingent upon Donald Trump as a source of authority. 
Trump serves as the despotic signifier for the baking process. Yet importantly, this does not imply that he is in charge of how QAnon believers will see him or how they will bake world events in relation to him. One of the reasons why QAnon is such an absurd belief system, which has no real reference to Trump's personal goals and desires, by this I mean that Trump desires to make more money, to be more well-liked, etc., and QAnon believers project onto him a desire to take over in a military coup, is because one existing as a despotic signifier, like Trump does for the Q people, does not necessarily imply that one has an absolute control over one's society. We can imagine the example of Hirohito during Imperial Japan as an excellent representation of the potentially limited powers that the despotic signifier has. An example which was given to me by my Twitter mutual, Jimothy Burglar. Hirohito had very minimal control and capacity to act during Imperial Japan. He was essentially powerless, he was a figurehead. Yet, essentially all acts of war, military decisions, government policy choices, etc., were done under the guise of relating to his authority. All crucial actions were fundamentally related to him, his personal interests, security, decision-making, etc. Yet he had no actual influence. Importantly, if Hirohito had been removed from power, this would have fundamentally altered Japanese society. So he's a very essential figure that all meaning flows through, and yet that doesn't mean that he can act as if he is this all-powerful sovereign despot. He has no real capacity to influence politics, yet his position is essential, and all meaning-making must necessarily relate to him. It is important not to give in to the liberal great man theory of history when describing figures like Trump and their role as a despotic signifier for QAnon. Hegel refutes great man theory, ironically, very similarly to Deleuze and Guattari in imagining that Napoleon was history on horseback. For Hegel, Napoleon had represented the zeitgeist of the Napoleonic Wars, where all world history had diverged into him, relating to him and his decisions. But that did not mean that Napoleon was in charge of world history during this time. In fact, becoming as world historically significant as Napoleon is likely not a desirable trait, as one can see in how Napoleon's life ended. This is one way of imagining how world historically significant Trump is as a figure, while also somehow viewing him as not having a meaningful effect on the creation of something such as QAnon propaganda. Trump, of course, enables the Q conspiracy by not denouncing it. Yet, it is also not a surprise to see a conspiracy theory like QAnon attach itself to an individual who, given the opportunity, would not denounce it for personal gain. The specific sites of meaning creation, the baking process, related to QAnon are not, in the immediate sense, constructed by a top-down state apparatus. They reference Trump as a despotic signifier, yet this does not mean he is in control of it. This marks a significant break from how fascist propaganda is typically disseminated, or how it used to be disseminated. As noted by Adorno and Horkheimer, to see more of this, look on my episode about conspiracy theories in QAnon titled The Stars Down to Earth. Fascist propaganda for Adorno and Horkheimer takes a similar model to the culture industry. Mass culture is produced analogously to factory production, meaning it is organized in a top-down structure by corporate executives, where the individual is conditioned to be simply handed a heavily commodified, relatively intellectually simple product as central to their cultural life. 
Adorno and Horkheimer argue that fascist propaganda is produced following the exact same relationship to the culture industry. And the culture industry introduces the individual to this relationship and makes fascist propaganda more effective. One of the classic examples I like to reference is Adorno comparing a fortune teller handing someone's fate down to them as similar to Mussolini handing political truth down to his fascist believers. This can help reasonably explain why so many movie references are crucial to the QAnon worldview. Their fascist propaganda literally references products of the culture industry instead of simply working analogously to it. Contrastingly to this traditional model, though, QAnon is not produced using the top-down industrial relationship seen in traditional fascism. I would also argue that the abundance of references to, like, cinema, for instance, in QAnon, I mean, the Q drops where he says, you know, you are watching a movie, is actually an example of something that Adorno and Horkheimer did not conceive of. Because usually fascist propaganda would not expressly reference Hollywood. It would replace Hollywood with itself. But because of the fact that this fascist propaganda is produced autonomously by those who are so deeply affected by the culture industry, who can only see the world through references to popular culture, that when they start producing fascist propaganda themselves, of course they are going to reference this culture industry directly. I could be wrong about this, but my understanding of most top-down authoritarian fascist propaganda does not reference Hollywood. It works, again, analogously to Hollywood and to how Hollywood and, and other elements of the culture industry hand down culture to the masses. But again, it expressly doesn't reference Hollywood and the culture industry, for the most part, because that would be stealing its own thunder. That would be stealing the fascist demagogue's own thunder. It wants to replace Hollywood with itself. Many may respond that they disagree with this position and assert that Q is probably an op by either the CIA or Russia invented to divide American politics or embolden the right, etc. This account would meaningfully imply that the fascist propaganda of Q is in fact identical in nature to the fascist propaganda of old. This belief falls into the inverse misunderstanding of those who imagine that Q accounts getting banned would end the QAnon movement. Instead of imagining QAnon to be entirely decentralized, rhizomatic, they instead assert that it is entirely top-down and arborescent. One will gravely misunderstand the Q movement if they ignore either its partially rhizomatic elements or its overall arborescent structure. QAnon is not an operation by a state intelligence agency simply because it is too ridiculous. No competent government could ever imagine that such an absurd story, with such an absurd introduction on 4chan, would ever dream of being remotely as successful as QAnon has been. I think the one exception to this is in relation to Pizzagate, and this is, you know, sort of a conspiracy tinfoil hat thing, but I think you could reasonably argue that some actors in relation to Epstein, or in relation to people who knew Epstein, boosted Pizzagate early on to make it seem as if the implication that political and Hollywood elites are engaging in pedophilia is a ridiculous concept. The only meaningful example you can provide of this, which again, this isn't proof, is how much people like Mike Cernovich boosted Pizzagate early on, and Mike Cernovich's personal connection with Epstein's personal lawyer, Alan Dershowitz. But again, that's not necessarily the case, and it could be very possible that Pizzagate 
which is an important early conspiracy that builds the QAnon sort of ethos, was totally built sort of spontaneously. That's definitely possible. The Q ethos has generally been constructed in a way that is very dissimilar to a majority of fascist propaganda. And also, of course, in this analogy, even if it is boosted by people to make the idea that, that political elites are having sex with children seem ridiculous, it was simply boosted by people, and it's very doubtful that Pizzagate itself would have been an op. It would be simply a product of powerful people taking advantage of the autonomous crypto rhizomatic esque production of fascist propaganda, which is nothing new. You know, we see the Republican Party taking advantage of Q, dog whistling to Q, for instance. We see Republican senators believing in QAnon. You know, the thing about the crypto rhizome is that it is related to a top-down political structure, so it's going to be integrated even further in certain instances into it. Q propaganda has not been directly built upon a central ministry that espouses particular positions that the fascist masses then come to believe. It was created entirely autonomously of these central mechanisms of propaganda, which still certainly exist, and espouse beliefs that in certain situations even contradict the central propaganda apparatus. In a certain sense, we can imagine that this is a product of the post-industrial age, where the division of labor centered around factory production is exported to countries in the periphery to be replaced primarily by service jobs. The gig economy has a far more analogous structure to the production of contemporary fascism than factory production for a multitude of reasons. The most important one being the transition away from a Foucauldian disciplinary society towards a Deleuzean society of control. To quote Deleuze in Postscripts on the Society of Control, Felix Guattari has imagined a city where one would be able to leave one's apartments, one's street, one's neighborhood, thanks to one's individual electronic card that raises a given barrier. But that card could easily be rejected on a given day or between certain hours. What counts is not the barrier, but the computer that tracks each person's position, licit or illicit, and affects a universal modulation. By the way, this is written in 1992. Within the Foucauldian disciplinary society, one is organized analogously with the factory, where a disciplinary mechanism of power takes the unmolded collective of semi-skilled proletarian labor, to combine Foucault and Marx here, and molds it to fulfill a specific task on the long and monotonous industrial division of labor to increase profits. We can compare the disciplinary society to how traditional fascist propaganda is produced according to Adorno and Horkheimer. Within the society of control, one is organized alongside, instead of the factory, the model of the gig economy. Deleuze had written in 1992 that the society of control functioned alongside the corporation, but he had predicted this phenomenon early enough to not see its primary locus in our contemporary era, which is still corporate, but nevertheless far more specific. Different institutions of power joined together in a collaborative effort to define the individual by a large set of data points. Their consumption habits, their location, their credit score, their GPA, their criminal record, an, an absurd and insanely large amount of data sets. Hundreds of billions of pieces of data about a, a certain population. If certain elements of the data set deem one undesirable, so for example, you are sometimes late on rent, you have a criminal record, you said something bad about capitalism online even, 
the algorithms which manage the datasets collected about you collectively work to deny you access to particular elements of society. It is only able to do this, the society of control, based upon the pure atomization involved in platform-based business models, in which everything is not owned by the individual, but rented out by large corporations as a service. One rents their car, their home, the music they listen to, the shows they watch, even the means of production they labor on, etc. This, of course, allows those corporations, if the large algorithms that analyze the collection of data around them, to deny them access to these essential services which they have been renting through the corporation. This extends to services such as Uber, which deeply atomizes individual work not by molding the individual through disciplinary power on an assembly line, but by renting their labor out to others and enforcing the completion of that labor through a GPS-based surveillance apparatus. It's also important to analyze how this is sort of like the disciplinary society. And I've, I've seen some interesting arguments that refute Deleuze and say, well, how is this different than how Foucault described the disciplinary society? So I'll go over that position more because I think it's very interesting in the, the premium part of this episode. As a result of this, the disciplinary society, power does not mold the individual based upon a Foucauldian disciplinary panoptic model, which threatens that surveillance at any time is possible. Instead, power molds the individual through the literal constant application of surveillance by a techno-political security apparatus. The crucial similarity in structure to a movement such as QAnon and the Society of Control comes from the fact that this apparatus is dispersed and seemingly rhizomatic. Unlike the traditional industrial factory's disciplinary power, the Society of Control works to permanently observe the individual and collect data on them in increasingly intimate ways that abstract the subject while simultaneously reifying them. To quote Sadowski in Too Smart, which is a book I absolutely recommend you read, quote, We can see the rapid growth of a technological rhizome through the ongoing effort to connect everything together into integrated, expansive, smart systems. The rhizomatic smart systems spread and creep, becoming massive and sprawling while reproducing the interests and imperatives they represent. Uprooting a large rhizome is a difficult task. You can try to shear parts of it, but more stems will emerge somewhere from the massive roots. Sadowski's account of digital capitalism and its relationship to the Deleuzean society of control within Too Smart is excellent. He highlights the nature in which the society of control appears as if it is rhizomatic, yet in reality, it is not. This society, of course, cannot be predicated upon a purely rhizomatic data structure as it is embedded within a techno-capitalist surveillance state. The crypto-rhizome is the emerging data structure that attempts to envelop all else through an acceleration of capital. As the society of control, along with the increased power of corporate data accumulation, mass surveillance, atomized gig economy jobs, renting everything one requires instead of owning it, etc., becomes more significant and outshines the traditional disciplinary society, we will begin to see more and more of our world flow through these crypto-rhizomes. In many ways, they are far less stable than that of the purely arborescent structure, as highlighted by the inability of QAnon to meaningfully organize itself politically, and cryptocurrency being far less stable than fiat-based regulated currencies. But in many ways, they are much stronger than the traditional arborescent structure. For the most part, 
The crypto rhizome comes from an attempt to critique the traditional arborescent structure, which does not have the capacity to go far enough. We can see this in the example of blockchain-based cryptocurrencies attempting to critique the top-down authoritarian structure of a central bank, or QAnon attempting to critique the powers that be who uphold the oppressive global political system, or even in quote-unquote platform-based corporations who are ushering in the society of control attempting to disrupt older corporate models. In each case, we can imagine that this attempt at criticism makes our own criticism, which works to abolish the entire structure, far more difficult. QAnon, for instance, already attempts to market itself as an opposition to the status quo, which will fight against the quote-unquote elites and allow for the common man to thrive. It therefore may distract and mislead individuals who would otherwise be sympathetic to a meaningful critique of, let's say, the state and capitalism, the actual cause of all these problems. This is why, firstly, it is extremely dangerous to describe something like QAnon as being partially correct, as a result of it saying something about the existence of a group of elites who control our society. If our analysis is to be truly rhizomatic, if it is truly to work to deconstruct arborescent, top-down structures instead of being integrated within them, we cannot give a single point of credit to these crypto rhizomes. To do so is like giving credit to the Silicon Valley tech billionaires who are disrupting old capitalist markets by transitioning us to the society of control. It would seem ridiculous, in my opinion, to credit these tech billionaires for admitting the old capitalist social formation is faulty, given that their solution is to make the situation even worse, just as QAnon does. Criticism fundamentally always exists in relation to the one who is criticizing it. You cannot separate it from its intent. Is this criticism for the purpose of creating a better world? Or is it to make it even worse? To properly destroy these new crypto rhizomatic social formations necessitates one at least understanding their nature. Lest we attempt to destroy them as if they are either purely rhizomatic or purely arborescent, and fail just as one would fail to attempt to destroy the trembling giant merely by cutting down its individual aspen trees. As Deleuze writes, it is up to young people to discover what they're being made to serve, just as their elders discovered, not without difficulty, the telos of the disciplines. The coils of a serpent are even more complex than the burrows of a molehill. I'll go over this more uh, in a premium episode for just $2 a month on patreon.com slash Thank you to Patreon, please don't fire us, for being on the $20 tier. I realized I put the $20 bonus as me thanking you at the end of the episode, and then I forgot to do it on the last episode, so I am sorry about that. And also, again, the premium episodes are available for $2 a month, but then with five as well, you can get the sort of weekly updates on what I'm working on and a more intimate account of, of my work, etc. Which, you know, you don't have to do any of this, of course, but it's much appreciated. So yeah, see you next time.